On Thursday, I took my two older boys to meet their granddad in Lake Charles. That's not quite halfway, but it was close enough to halfway that I was okay with it. So we met there. Actually, I ran into a tad bit of traffic, and by tad bit, I mean a lot of traffic as we drove from here to Lake Charles because there is always traffic from here to Louisiana. I think Baton Rouge is 47 hours wide. On the outside of Louisiana, on the Texas state line, I noticed that we stopped having cell signal. AT&T was down, and I'm an AT&T person. Complicating matters, the interstate was completely locked up on the other side of the, of the interstate on the way back home. When we got to where we're meeting my father-in-law for lunch, I, I stole uh, some Wi-Fi from his phone because he was with a company that I am not with and uh, so I could get to a friend's church in the area to, to meet with him for just a few moments. I wanted to go home. I did not want to get on the interstate on the way back home. And because I was not planning for a 19th century war, I did not have a map with me. So this pastor friend told me how to get home. And he let me know that go right out of our church parking lot. And then there's a road down the way where you're going to take a left. And you'll follow that road all the way to this highway called Highway 12 in Louisiana where I am sure some horror movies have been filmed. It will take you to the interstate. You will know exactly where you are going. He said, drive until you get to De Quincey. Never heard of De Quincey. That will take you to Vider. Never heard of Vider. But there I was on the interstate. I was smart enough and had enough wherewithal to put it in my phone when I was in the church where I had wireless. However, about midway there, everything stopped working. It was a weird time. Have you had one of those times recently where you're in your car or you're in any aspect of life and your phone won't do what your phone was designed by the Lord himself to do <laughs> looking around looking for some type of help some type of uh, way home some type of deliverance a term that I use loosely aimless restless in these small towns that I've never heard of that were on the outside of towns that no one has ever heard of. When we meet in Luke today, chapter 1, we are meeting with a young lady named Mary, and her situation was a situation from one of those towns. A town called Nazareth, where we have been told nothing good came from. In the middle of nowhere, her entire life was one where she would be insignificant and meaningless. The entirety of her world was wrapped up in who had promised her to whom, what decisions had been made by her parents and the parents of another young man, of a young man, so they could be married to one another. There would be a trade made uh, where the the family of the father would give a bridal gift to the family, uh, or the family of the husband would give a bridal gift to the family of the, his bride-to-be. This young lady named Mary was in that situation. Her whole life, one where she was depending upon others to get from one place to the next, helpless. 
as close to innocent as a human being can possibly be in this situation. Though none of us are innocent, all of us are marred and affected by sin, her life was one that was, for the most part, viewed as insignificant. It did not seem as if Mary mattered to the entirety of the world around her. The rules and regulations and the customs of the Jewish tradition would allow her husband to leave her if she had done anything wrong, if she did anything wrong. And by the, the story that we read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew, many would believe that Mary had done something wrong. When you read in the Gospels, uh, the Gospel of John, you will see that there is allusion to the idea that Mary had done something wrong. This story of her insignificance and her lack of value in her world is very intrinsic and helpful to us understanding what God has to say not only to Mary but to each and every one of us in a space like this today the week before we celebrate Christmas. This waiting, this anticipation that is Advent. So if you're looking for a big idea in this passage, we're going to see some things in the text. And I want you to notice this. Mary celebrates the Messiah will restore what sin and its corruption have broken. I'll read that again. Mary celebrates that the Messiah will restore what sin and its corruption have broken. She wants that. And if any of us are going to wrestle with what it means for us to be God's people, we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I want what God wants? Do I celebrate what God celebrates? Do I love what God loves? Do I hate? Do I abhor what God abhors? Am I aligning my life and my desires with what seemed to be the heart of God from the Scriptures? I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Alluding to the, the totality of what we find when we say the word Emmanuel, that God is with us. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will bring he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end Mary asked the angel how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man and the angel replied to her the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And, considering, and consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. We get a measuring point in the text there. This sixth month. 
And then Mary is going to go visit with Elizabeth in this sixth month. This time where we are seeing the story of God's intervention into a broken, hopeless, dark, sin-stained world run by a man named Herod, but overrun by this thing called sin, God's going to intervene, and He's not going to intervene in the way that we would anticipate Him intervening. He is not raising up the the warriors of the Lord of the Rings. He is meeting two women at a, a, really, a a bridal shower, a, a baby shower. They're sitting together and they're celebrating all that God is and all that God would do. And they're talking to one another about who this God is. And we read this text to help us set up and see what's going to take place next. Because we're about to walk toward this massively important text that many of us as Protestants overlook, downplay, even ignore. R.C. Sproul says about this passage that we're going to read today in Luke that Mary's song, the Magnificat, is one of the most important hymns in the history of the church. William Barclay said, It has been said that that religion is the opiate of the people, but it has also been said that the Magnificat is the most revolutionary document in the world. That's pretty strong words for a song that we don't know that well. This isn't on Taylor Swift's top ten. For many of us who had a, for any of us who may have this uh, visual of a meek Mary strumming a violin as she sings this song, Bonhoeffer has things to say about it. Bonhoeffer, Hoffer, as in the one who attempted to overthrow Hitler, Bonhoeffer, he, he said this: the Song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. If you are unfamiliar with the word Advent, the idea of waiting. It's this hymn of waiting. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This is the passionate, surrendered, proud, enthusiastic Mary who speaks out here. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. Fa-la-la-la-la, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Frosty the Snowman that never mentions Christmas. That's a complete and utter side note. It is instead a hard, strong song about collapsing thrones and humbling lords of this world, about the power of God and the powerlessness of humanity. These are the tones of the woman prophets of the Old Testament that now come to life in the words of this small, seemingly insignificant girl. This song that she's going to sing during the British rule of India, it was illegal to sing the Magnificat in church. I feel a lot in common because Jared has told me it is illegal for me to sing in church. And in the 1980s, Guatemalan government discovered that Mary's words about God's love for the poor was inspiring the poor in their area. They believed it to be dangerous and a tool of revolution. It was made illegally to publicly recite these words of Mary. In Argentina, the song was outlawed because a group of mothers used the words to protest the disappearance of their children during a military dictatorship. These words are impactful, they are influential, and they meet the real-life realities of people who read them and interact with them. This is a song that's in line with the numerous other prophecies by women in the Old Testament. You've heard of Miriam in the book of Exodus. She prophesies. Deborah in Judges, again. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you were to read 1 Samuel 2 alongside of the Magnificat, there are cons- consistent themes there. 
This is the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the entirety of the New Testament. This is not a calming song. I used to spend the night at a buddy's house in college. And after we had uh, spent an, a big day of visiting Sonic in the Chattanooga area, going to work at UPS where I spent far too many years of my collegiate life, uh, we would just hang out, all of us. And to calm down, this friend, every night, he would play songs by Sarah McLaughlin and Enya. I had the weirdest friends. This isn't that. This song is clapping, it's stomping, it's loud. It's celebration, it's adulation. 30 weeks before Bethlehem ever happened. 30 years before Calvary, before a crucified Jesus. 30 years before his resurrection. 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Because he has looked, over, he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me. And His name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and He has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things. And He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel remembering His mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as He spoke to our ancestors. That's the song of Mary. That's a song that we ignore. That's the song that we overlook. And that's the song that helps us see how our God interrupts and undoes all that is broken in this world. When it mentions those who fear Him in verse 50. It's the Old Testament equivalent to when we talk about as New Testament Christians and as we read in the New Testament the notion that God is faithful. Because a God who is faithful is one who we can walk alongside of and trust even though He is worthy of what we would consider and define as fear. When it lets us know that He has done mighty things and He has scattered the proud, it is reminding us as the people of God that this God who we know, this God who we trust, this God who we believe in is undoing the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom that reigns, seemingly reigns and rules over it. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones. Our God is not one who aligns himself with the political powers of our day or any day throughout the history of history. Our God is one who stands in the middle and when you ask him, are you for us, are you against us? He says, no. I am the sovereign of all creation. That's who this God is that she sings to. The God of the Hebrew people is about to undo the entirety of the world in this passage. This is not just the defeat of Rome. It is the defeat of something and someone much bigger and better. The Messiah would crush the head of the serpent. I posted this image on Facebook years ago, and I believe they had a picture of it. It's a meeting between Mary and Eve. And there's all types of imagery in this painting and it's one of 
really a, a tad bit of conversation. But if you'll notice, there are some things that are parallel there. You see Eve looking to the womb of Mary because there is a hope that what is the seed of Mary will undo what has taken place. There is fruit present in the image. There is the fruit of sin represented by what surrounds them. There is the fruit of in Mary the seed of Mary that will destroy all that sin is. You notice that Eve is wrapped up in the serpent. You see that Mary has her head on the serpent, anticipating the crushing of the serpent's head by the Messiah who will come. We look at an image like this and we're reminded that our God is one who has been planning the overthrowing of sin and death and hell from the very beginning, before we even knew how to spell beginning. Mere orthodoxy writers Matt Emerson and Luke Stamps point this out about the incarnation of Jesus in the womb. The incarnation in the womb of the virgin already signals Satan's defeat. As John Calvin emphasized, Calvin, don't be afraid of that. We, we like him around here. It was the whole course of Christ's obedience that brought about redemption. The very act of assumption, as God the Son took to himself a complete human nature, body and soul, already begins Christ's atoning mission. Reconciling God and man and the crown of his creation in his person. Mary's declaration laced with the truths of Old Testament teaching and allusion to Old Testament scriptures tells the tale of her son in the prophetic way that says that God's battle has already been won. We sang that today and that is forever true. It has already happened. And in already happening, God is reversing all that has been broken in this sinful, shattered world. Now hear me, friends, and I say this regularly in our space. It when we talk about sin breaking the world, we can almost remove ourselves and make ourselves second-person observers to that. That is untrue. Sin has broken the world, and because sin has broken the world, it has shattered everything. And there is no step that we take apart from a rescuer where that broken, shattered world will not crush and consume us. It becomes part of us. We cannot operate apart from it outside of someone meeting us. The poor and the marginalized experience the blessing of God in this passage. And you notice though, as Mary deals with this, as Mary walks us through what's taking place here, you see our God intercepting people who are unlike those we think would reign and rule. You see our God elevating people who we may not necessarily elevate. We see our God caring about people who we can often... God caring for the lowly. God caring for young girls in the corner of a nowhere town. God caring for the impoverished in our midst. Our God caring for widows. These are consistent themes of the scripture. Are they consistent themes for us? That our God sees our world differently than we do. And our natural inclination and our natural desire is to elevate 
everything that sin and death and brokenness and hell have elevated. We want to make the one who reigns and rules the one who looks like he should reign or rule. Even the best of us. When Samuel goes to visit Jesse, the father of, well, he's uncle of Bo and Luke, but Jesse, the, the father of David, he walks through the sons of David, or the, the sons of Jesse, and as he looks at them, he has a reason and a rhyme as to who should reign. But there comes a point where God just keeps telling him, no, 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 no. You are looking at outward appearance. I look at the heart. Our God is looking to show us his heart. And he, and he wants us to align ourselves with his heart. Later it will be prophesied that a sword will pierce her soul. That's Luke chapter 2 verse 35. At the dedication of Jesus. Every parent in the room gets that on some level. When your kid doesn't get home on time, maybe you have a teenager that has a curfew of 11 and they get home at 11.27 and you cannot go to sleep because you have angst in your soul as to what has taken place in that 27 minutes. When you lose a kid in a store because they inevitably get lost in stores. Even now that we can shop on Amazon, I'm shocked they're not lost on Amazon right now. Where is he? Where is she? Where are they? Mary deals with the things that we deal with, the idea of things that are soul-crushing, intercepting her life. She could not find her son when he was 12 years old. When he's 30 years old, she goes looking for him and he, she gets the weirdest answer, this vague thing about, these are my brothers and this is my brother. It's the strangest things that she hears. Wright says, when it seems as if God, God has deceived her, he hangs on the cross and she has to question, is this really the way that it's supposed to be? The realization of the resurrection... That yes, our God is doing something altogether new. Our Lord, our God, our powerful Savior, the holy, merciful, faithful one. God has given Mary a reason to celebrate. In this Jesus who we are anticipating and who we are celebrating each and every week of this Advent. God has given us someone to attach our hearts to. To see and know and trust that He is the great deliverer of all deliverance. That all that is undone will be made right. All the sad things will be made untrue. That's the work of our Jesus. We should celebrate what God celebrates. We should care for what God cares for. And in this text, we see that we should celebrate everyone who hears the voice of God and obeys. So for those of us from the Protestant tradition that look at Mary and we're not really sure what to do with her, could you just align your heart with that for just a moment and see that you are given the same opportunity that she is to triumphantly declare that the voice of God has met you, that God himself is with you, and that he is going to undo all that has been broken in this world. That's who Jesus is. Can we say that about you? Do I want what God wants? Do I care about what God cares about? 
Because the story of Mary is one of him declaring that God wins. It's a prophetic announcement of something as if it has already happened. As we sit in the waiting for Jesus to come again, will we prophetically declare that we believe that what God has promised has already happened? He has made this world, He has given the opportunity for this world to be made new. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Each week here at Grace, we we take communion where we celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. We remember that we get to anticipate that He is coming again to bring His people home. I'm going to read Mary's song again over us. This glorious declaration that God gave her. This prophetic word that she was allowed to to declare to the world. This celebratory victory song. And for those of you who are in in dark spaces, who are going through difficult things, who are working through now, if you are a believer in Jesus, would you meet yourself in the victory that she is proclaiming? in the hope that she is announcing. And remember that your God is for you. If you're not a believer, I invite you to place your trust in Jesus. You cannot put together the shattered pieces of sin on your own. Jesus can. Only Jesus can. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because He has looked with favor on the humble condition of His servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the Mighty One has done great things for me and His name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear Him. He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and He has exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel remembering His mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever just as He spoke to our ancestors. Lord, meet us this morning and remind us that You are for us and help us to trust that You are with us.